0: Support for Rule Breaker Investing comes from TurboTax Live, new from TurboTax. Now you can get a personal review of your tax return with a CPA or EA right on your screen. Talk live, that's right, live with a tax expert as often as you need for tax advice to help you file with confidence. Go to TurboTaxLive.com. fool And this Motley Fool podcast is supported by Wonder Capital, the easiest way to invest in large-scale Solar energy projects across the U.S. With Wonder, you can help finance renewable energy projects while earning up to seven and a half percent annually. To get started, visit wondercapital.com/fool. That's Wonder with a U Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism.
1: It's the Rule Breaker Investing Podcast with Motley Fool co-founder David Gardner.
0: Welcome back to Rule Breaker Investing. Happy Valentine's Day! There's not going to be a lot of love this show, although I do think you might love this show. It's a really special interview that I conducted a few days ago with Kevin Kelly, the co-founder of Wired and the author of the book, The Inevitable, understanding the 12 technological forces that will shape our future. Of this interview, it was said by, well, a Motley Fool One member who watched it in video form later, you're going to get to enjoy the entire thing this week. My friend Randy said, I'm trying to remember an interview that I've enjoyed more, and I'm only coming up with that time I heard the Dalai Lama interviewed in Houston in the early 90s. I'll give the Dalai Lama the slight edge because, well, he's the Dalai Lama, but otherwise, it's very, very close, great work. And what I can say about this interview, not only will it challenge your thoughts about where our future is headed, I think give you some good hope, maybe even some excitement, but also some good cautionary thinking as well. Not only, I think, will you enjoy that. But I have to say, Kevin is a charming and gracious man. In fact, he spent an hour or two after this interview at our event just hanging out with members, something you never expect an outside speaker to do at a conference. So, a real delight to meet for the first time, interview, and befriend Kevin Kelly, now clearly a friend of the Fool. Well, as I mentioned, you're going to get the whole enchilada, but let me just pretend that not everybody thinks this is as compelling as an interview with the Dalai Lama. So, in that case, my producer Rick Engdahl has broken this up into kind of a normal-length format for this podcast, maybe 35-45 minutes or so, we'll see. But then, for people who found this as enticing as I hope you might, we're going to have a Rule Breaker Investing Extra come out this weekend, which completes the interview and gives you some of the Q&A from the audience. So, without further ado, let's get started. Well, this is a delight. A brief introduction, Kevin. Uh, You don't really need much introduction for a lot here in the crowd, but for many who will listen to this on my podcast, uh, Kevin Kelly has written for the New York Times, The Economist, Science, Time, and The Wall Street Journal. Back in 1985, he was involved with the launch of The Well, the pioneering online community, which I'd forgotten was sold to Salon. Um, Then, later, Kevin helped launch Wired in 1993, was its executive editor for its first seven years. His most recent book, the subject of today's conversation, is The Inevitable, Understanding the Twelve Technological Forces That Will Shape Our Future. Now, longtime technology journalist David Pogue had this to say about Kevin. You have to love this line. I'm sure you've heard this one before, Kevin. But this is a great line. Anyone can claim to be a prophet, a fortune teller, or a futurist, and plenty of people do. What makes Kevin Kelly different is that he's right. (laughs) He's currently the official... Senior Maverick at Wired. So we have the Senior Maverick and the Chief Rule Breaker at our company up here, very, very subversive. Um, you know, I think I'll always feel a decade behind you, Kevin. Um, certainly a decade behind your thinking, which you shared so beautifully in The Inevitable. And, uh, but also in your actions and activities, because I think I first signed on to online bulletin boards in 1991. For you, 1981, when you first discovered the magic of a computer, because it wasn't just that it was
1: a computer. That's right, computers um, themselves really didn't do very much. They sped up some things a little bit. They really entered our lives and transformed them when they were connected to the telephone, when they were connected to each other. So I had played around with the Apple IIe and it was kind of cool, but when I discovered the modem and that there was this emerging continent on the other side of the wall plug, that was when... These things became more organic for me, a little bit more human-like, and um, I became much more interested. I was, you know, I was kind of a hippie, keeping technology away from me as much as possible. But this felt a little bit more Amish to me. Mm. Great
0: line. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, under the assumption that you are operating in the future, which is not evenly distributed, as we've talked some about, that you here right now, February 9th, 9.56 Pacific, uh, that's where I am, you're actually about 10 years ahead of us right now. So what I wanted to ask you is what have you already done today that um, the rest of us won't be doing, maybe routinely adopting in, until
1: 2028? Oh, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, so. Um, One of the things that that I do is spend a lot of time outside the US, and I think if I had to paint a picture of the future, it would probably be outside of the US. Um, As you know, China is just accelerating to the future. It's almost breathtaking in the sense that it's breathless. Um, And so what I did today was be part of China in terms of a, a teleconference call. And um, I think that if you, whatever picture we're gonna paint in the next 20 years, 30 years, that places like Asia are gonna be a much bigger role in that future, both in designing it, as well as, of course, participating in it. Um, and so um, a lot of what I'm doing these days is looking to Asia and saying, what do you have in store for us? Because in some senses, I think Asia is going to decide our future for us.
0: I know after this event, you are headed to...
1: I'm headed to uh, Dubai and Saudi Arabia um, uh, as part of another project. But also um, that's also part of the story of where the future is erupting. At Wired, we used to take the Bill Gibson quote, which says, the future is already here, it's just unevenly distributed. And we felt that our job was to... Go around the world and find those places where the future was already erupting, and bring the news back. And more and more, I feel as a lot of that future is erupting outside of the U.S. And it's just partly mathematics. You know, one point five billion Chinese, one point five billion uh, Indians, and you have three billion people, and there's three hundred million in America. There's ten times the people, um, the the you know people's um, Assets and their abilities are evenly distributed. Opportunities are not. But the opportunities are beginning to become more evenly distributed around the world. And that means that um, just in terms of arithmetic, there's going to be more things happening elsewhere.
0: Um, So I want to start thinking about your book. And I want to start with one of your quotes so that our foolish audience here, our ship of fools, can see how lucidly you write, for those who haven't already seen it, How, how are you able to see the really big picture. So from your intro, Kevin, you wrote, change is inevitable. We now appreciate that everything is mutable and undergoing change, even though much of this alteration is imperceptible. The highest mountains are slowly wearing away under our feet, while every animal and plant species on the planet is morphing into something different in ultra slow motion. Even the eternal shining sun is fading on an astronomical schedule, though we will be long gone when it does. Human culture and biology, too, are part of this imperceptible slide toward something new. So picking up on that, um, this sliding that's taking place, you identify 12 um, ways that we're sliding. And I want to go through, for our, our time today, let's go through the first six. Because um, I would love to do all of them, but it's deep. Each yeah. of these chapters or thoughts sure, is sure. a whole conversation. So, um, and they're not genomics, by the way, or autonomous vehicles, if that's what you think that Kevin is telling us is going to shape our future. No doubt those things will, or smart homes. But nope, um, they're all verbs. They're actually present participles, as you take pains to point out, and it's always appreciated by a fellow English major. <laughs> or, I don't know, fellow, but, uh, but the first one is, number one, is becoming. So by that... You mean we are in, and here's a new word for many of us, we are in a protopia. Could you please explain?
1: Yeah. So um, I, I would like just to make a little preamble about the title and the word inevitable because this is part of the, of the story. And um, uh, inevitable is a word that's kind of a red flag world. that gets a lot of people very uncomfortable, or if not outraged, because I'm talking about some of the things in technology that are inevitable. And um, I mean it in a kind of um, not the strong way that if we rewind the tape of life that we will everything will happen exactly the same again, that we'd be right here where we are. I meant in a, in a, in a, in a more um, looser way in, this, in the sense that um, if you kind of imagine rain falling down into a valley, um, physics and mathematics says that the path of an individual drop going down is completely unpredictable. And so the specifics of the the future are inherently unpredictable. We cannot predict them just because they're so complicated. That's kind of the theory of chaos. But the theory also says that if you take enough of those drops, there is a strange attractor, there is recurring patterns. So even though we don't know the actual path of an individual drop, we know this direction, which is inevitable, downward. It's going to go down. That direction is inevitable, even though the path is not. So uh, what I'm looking for are the the gravities, the the, the general trajectories of things, even though the specific company or product is inherently unpredictable. Is Apple gonna go up or down? Is Apple gonna be, who knows? We can't predict. However, there are some larger scale things that we can talk about that can be very valuable and maybe in a certain sense even more valuable than the particulars. So if I had, you know, 40 years ago, Gordon Moore came up with Moore's Law which says that, you know, every 18 months, computer chips, we get twice as fast and half as cheap. If you really believe that 40 years ago, that for four decades, computers would become twice as fast, half as cheap. You didn't need to know about IBM or Apple. You only need to know about that to really make a fortune, to change your political structure, to change education. If you really believe that, that would be enough of a direction that this that, that was, was going to happen. And so I think understanding some of these long-term trends, which are inevitable, even though the specifics are not, are, are, is really useful.
0: I'm so glad you led with that. and I really should have pointed that out because that's the title of the book We should right, have started right. there, but that is th- that you're you're right. right. And you're eloquent about that And so we now understand Inevitability within an unpredictable chaotic right. framework
1: exactly and so to the first one about becoming one of the things that's inevitable is that things are changing and more importantly um, The current regime the current favorite programming language, the current dominant companies are all ephemeral. They will, they, will, they will change, they will go away. And all the things that you are now are expert on won't be as important in 10 years or 20 years from now, and there'll be new expertise needed. And while we tend to admire the young people because they are digital natives, in 20 years from now, they're not digital natives. They're gonna be old timers and geezers like us. <laughs> and they're gonna to have to learn wholly new things. So the, what I'm proposing is that everybody's gonna be a perpetual newbie. You're gonna be newbies all the time, all your life. You're gonna be encountering new things you have to learn and more importantly, things you have to unlearn. And so this stance of constantly being a newbie, having to learn, acquiring the the meta skill of learning how to learn and understanding that everything that we buy is also in that process of being upgraded all the time. So we're moving from things that are solid products to things that are services because they can be upgraded. So even a car, which we think of as a very physical noun, becomes a verb that's in the process, though, at night, your Tesla is upgrading itself. It's becoming a better car while it's sitting in your garage. And everything will acquire that sense of changing itself into something new as we use it. And we have to kind of get used to the fact that even the tool that we buy in a hardware store is going to have versions of itself.
0: And so it's just those of us who have some apps on our phone, and it, we're reminded that we need to update that app. It's time for patch number 1.68. Um, those are coming more frequently. We have more apps. Um, some of us probably don't even want to tap that button or go in and update everything, but we kind of need to. But increasingly, they're just doing it on their own anyway. Yes. And so things are just becoming.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so one of the, one of the marks of success in technology is when it becomes invisible. So if you think back to 150 years ago during the, the Industrial Revolution, uh, when motors came in, um, I have uh, clipped an ad from an old Sears catalog that showed the home motor. The home motor was a motor about this big. It weighed like 15 pounds. And the idea of the home motor was it was going to motorize everything in your household. Well, motors succeeded. Not because it became bigger and bigger in our home, but because they came smaller and smaller to the point that they became invisible. So you have probably hundreds of motors in your home that you don't even see, you're not aware of. And computers are doing the same thing where, where they, at first, were the big things that sat in front of us on our desk, and then they shrunk to something that sat on our lap, and then they copped into our pocket, and the next thing is they're going to be against our skin. But we're going to become more and more invisible. And the same thing with upgrading is that As it becomes more essential and pervasive, it basically will disappear from our awareness. That means it has succeeded.
0: Chapter two, (laughs) number two, cognifying, cognifying. So, largely about the spread of AI. Yeah. Um. And you include a helpful comparison
1: with electricity. Yeah. Exactly. So, um. Our lives, in general, all the. Sense of progress and prosperity we've had has come because of a basically the invention of one thing, which I would call um, artificial power. So during the agricultural age and before, the only way you could make something, whether a house or clothes or food, was using the natural power of muscle, either your muscles or some animal muscles. And so anything you had to use that was the only source of power was muscle power, natural power, and. The world was transformed when we invented artificial power, which was tapping into water power and steam power and coal power, oil power, nuclear power, where we could harness multiple horses. So, so, so when you push the button on your car and you drive down 60 miles an hour, you are summoning, summoning the power of 250 horses, that equivalent to just speed down the highway or else to throw up out. Building like this or a city like this, everything in it is relying on this artificial power, which was then delivered to everybody over an electrical grid. And the farmer in Oklahoma did not have to make his own artificial power. He could just buy as much power. It became a commodity, a utility that was distributed on the grid. We're now going to do the same thing with artificial intelligence, of adding artificial minds to that artificial muscle, and that artificial power, this artificial intelligence, is going to be distributed on a a grid that we call the cloud, which means that anybody who wants AI or artificial cognition can purchase as much as you want. You don't have to make it yourself. You're just going to buy it on this cloud grid, and right now, this minute, You can log on and you can buy AI from Google or Microsoft or IBM as much as you want. It's very cheap. And that's where we're going. So it's going to become a commodity like electricity. And like electricity, it's going to affect everything we do, just as artificial power has affected every regime from sports, food, fashion, education, military, religion. Same thing with AI, it's going to affect everything, it's gonna become a commodity, a utility, available to anybody, and it will, um, like the first industrial revolution, it's gonna make basically a second industrial revolution of the transformation that it's going to engender in our lives when we have the availability, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, of minds that are not human minds, They're, they're, they're alien minds, working on something that we want to work on
0: and so just as a century ago you said you could do pretty well as an entrepreneur by saying it's the hand pump that you already know but with electricity now it's going to be the product or service that you know but with ai
1: right so the farmer had a great you know who has the grid coming to him electrical looks at the manual muscle powered pump and says um i have an idea let me add the artificial power to it, and I'll make an electric pump, and now we're going to do it again, and everybody who has an electric pump, they're gonna say, I have an idea. I'll buy that AI, and I'll make a smart pump. And so just as the first Industrial Revolution was that mechanical pump made to automate it, multiplied by a million, we're gonna do the same thing of adding smartness to everything that we make, to some degree of it. And I've been talking about that for a very long time, you know we'll add little slivers of minute kinds of intelligence to our shoes to the chair to light bulbs to um, clothing to doorknobs and people would laugh and say, "Why would you put a computer into a doorknob and then you can't stay at a hotel today without having to interface with the computer and the doorknob so 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 the part of what we want to do and what I suggest is that we have to get Better at believing in the impossible.
0: Uh, before we move on to number three, I think we have to pay some lip service. I'd like you to, of yeah. course, to this notion that AI is going to doom us all, yeah. and um, and we should fight the machines before we get killed by, by AI. <laughs> yes. Do you
1: believe this? No, no I, I I don't. I think that um, AI is going to usher in the greatest level of prosperity and new jobs and new careers as we've ever seen before. And um, the, 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 one of the key things to understand about AI is that really is AIs is plural, that there are many varieties of artificial intelligences and our own intelligence is not a single dimension. We have a kind of a picture in our mind of a Kind of, like, loudness, where we have a little bit of intelligence in, like, you know, a rat or uh, some more in a monkey, and then there's kind of, you know, the village idiot, and then there's us, and then there's uh, the super AI geniuses. But in fact, that's a very, very incorrect view. Our own intelligence is a whole suite of different modes and nodes of cognition. We have perceptual, uh, pattern recognition, uh, inductive reasoning, deductive reasoning, symbolic reasoning. Um, We have emotional intelligence, we have long-term storage, we have many, many different types. And we're going to engineer some of the um, varieties of intelligence to be superior to us in some dimensions, as we have already. So your calculator, whether it's on your phone or separate, is an arithmetic genius. It is so much smarter than you are in arithmetic. We're not freaked out because it can't do very much else. It's very, very limited. But we're gonna make other kinds of intelligences, and the best way to think of them is alien intelligences. We can make AI be very creative. We've demonstrated that with the AlphaGo um, AI, which beat the best um, Go player in the world, and the third move of the third game was considered by all the experts to be utterly creative and brilliant. But it was also, they said, no human would ever do that. And so it's an alien kind of creativity. And that's actually its benefit, is that it doesn't think like humans. That's why we want them to drive our cars, because we don't want them to drive like humans. (laughs) We're terrible. Every year, humans kill one million other humans. And yet, we're going to be upset when a robot kills another human on the road. Because like, no, no, we want to be able to do that. It's like our job. (laughs) So these are alien intelligences, and they're different. And, and, And that's actually its benefit, because in this world that we're entering to, the chief engine of innovation and wealth, prosperity, is being able to think different. And as we connect ourselves together, 7 million people connected 24 hours a day to each other, it becomes increasingly difficult to think differently when you're connected to everybody else in the world all the time. So one of the things that AIs, because they think differently, are gonna help us do is to continue to think differently. So Gary Kasparov, the world's best chess player, lost to Deep Blue a decade ago, and he complained that it was unfair that he lost to an AI in the world chess match, because the AI had a database of every single chess mood that had ever been played in a championship. And he said, you know, if I was sitting next to that same database and playing the AI, I would have won. And he might have. And so he decided to make a new chess league where you could play as a human with a database or an AI. It's kind of like free martial art, any way you want. You could play as a human chess player, you could play as an AI, or you could play as a team of human plus AI. A centaur. He called it a centaur. He said it was half, half, half. And it turns out that today, the best, in the last four years, the best chess player on this planet is not an AI. It's not a human, it's a centaur. It's a team of AI plus humans. And the US military has adopted the same thing. And when they're trying to fly um, drones and other things, the best pilot, is not just an AI, it's not a human pilot, it's the centaur team of AI plus human. And in the medical diagnostics, so far the best um, uh, diagnostic is not a AI and it's not a human, it's the team, the centaur of the human plus AI. So where we're gonna be going to is um, working with these AIs and Every example we have of actual AIs and robots coming into the workplace has transformed jobs, but it really hasn't eliminated very many of them, because what it does is it takes all the tasks that we find repetitious and where efficiency matters, and it turns out that robots and AIs are really good at with efficiency. What they're not very good at is things that are inefficient. What's not, what are inefficient? Well. Innovation is inefficient, is inherently inefficient, so is science. If you're a scientist claiming to be 100% efficient, that means you haven't learned anything at all. You can't do innovation unless you're making mistakes, unless you have prototypes, unless you have dead ends, unless you're trying stuff that doesn't work. It's inherently inefficient. Science is inherently inefficient. Art is inherently inefficient. Social interactions are inefficient. So it turns out that what humans want to do are all the things that are inefficient. And as we start to do new things that we didn't imagine we needed, in the beginning, they're full of inefficiency. As we do them more, we figure out what's efficient, and those are the tasks that we give to the AIs and the bots. So in a certain sense, as we go through constantly inventing new things that we desire, spending time with them, and then eventually giving parts of those Jobs to the AIs, you could say in a certain sense that our job as humans is to invent jobs for the robots.
0: Support for rule breaker investing comes from TurboTax Live. It's new from TurboTax. Now you can get a personal review of your tax return with a CPA or EA right on your screen. Quickly connect to a tax expert via one way video as often as you need for answers and advice on your taxes. You can even have an expert review your return before you file, make any necessary changes, and it's all backed with a 100% accuracy guarantee. File with complete confidence. Connect with a TurboTax Live expert today at TurboTaxLive.com. Fool. Number three, love it. Flowing. Flowing. So, you call the third phase of computing uh, after first, desktop computing, and then second, the digital age, the web. Uh, you call the third phase the flows.
1: Yeah. So there, there's, there's a very, um, th- there's several things. One of the greatest trends in the last 25, 30 years has been a move from centralized organizations to decentralized organizations to the ability, what they often call flattening, where where you don't need as many levels, there's less top-down control. And that's true for all kinds of organizations, human organizations, and it's true for technology, too. So we have this idea of peer-to-peer. An Uber, which I took over this morning, being a prime example of that. So instead of having a taxi dispatcher Deciding who's gonna go, you have Peter, peer. I need a ride and some guy has a car, so we will be matched up. So that's this flattening, this, this, this flowing, and it's all made possible by the fact that we have this flow of information. So in the old days, if you were a general in an army and you wanted to command 100,000 soldiers, the only way to do it was a top-down command structure. You, you wanted the, the people at the, at the base to obey you because they didn't have any information. But in a world in which we have a lot of information and information flows between things, it's better actually to have that peer-to-peer. It's much more adaptable, much more accurate, and there's a disadvantage to trying to command from the top. So the the new technologies that we've had has enabled this, this the flows of information that we have constantly has enabled us to have decentralized institutions and decentralized technologies. It's all been permitted and we're gonna keep going in that that direction. At first, it seems crazy. It's like, how could an encyclopedia that was written by anybody in the world, changeable at any time, how could that possibly be reliable? And it turns out that it, it was because it was easier to undo of vandals change than it was to actually create it in the first place. It was easier to undo vandalism than to make vandalism. And so we see the success of something like Wikipedia, which was bottom up. And Uber and other examples of of peer-to-peer where you have the bottom doing everything and very little control. There's several things to say about that. One is that having the bottom up is not going to take us all the way that we wanna go. We've learned that you can't go all the way to what, you can't have the, the ideal encyclopedia with, unless you have some top-down control as well, you can't have um, a completely a, 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 a autonomous organization where everybody's on the bottom without some direction, but it can take you further than you thought you could go, and it's always the best place to begin. So, the, the the rule seems to be you can go further with the bottom only than you thought, eventually you'll need some top-down control, and it's always the best place to begin. So part of what we're seeing again and again is we're moving into the world where we're saying if we have a flow of information, and it's peer-to-peer and everybody has it, what can we do with just having it very few layers of control, and the answer is, Um, You can probably go further than you think it's a great place to start, but eventually you'll need some other Levels to get all the way where you want to go
0: number four um, Something that you and I When we were born you're a little older than me, but not that much older Um, We 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 thought screens as televisions Um, these days There's a whole generation that thinks of screens as something that you hold in your hand and spends a lot of time with it. Number four is screening. And Kevin, you said first we were people of the word, so oral history.
1: People of the book.
0: Sorry, excuse me. Well, no, no, you start with people of
1: of the word. Yeah.
0: People of the word. Oral
1: history. I've
0: actually read Kevin's book more recently than he has. (laughs) Then we became Gutenberg, people of the book, and now, we are people of the screen. Yeah. So, th- this is a compelling quote, I just want you to speak to it, and we need to keep going, otherwise I'll never get to my other questions. <laughs> um, so you, you wrote, people of the book reasonably fear, and we all started as people of the book, reasonably fear that books, and therefore classical reading and writing, will soon die as a cultural norm. The old way of reading, not this new way. Had an essential hand in creating most of what we cherish about a modern society literacy, rational thinking, science, fairness, rule of law. Where does that all go with, number four, screening?
1: Yeah. Yeah, so you're right that, that the first phase was sort of the oral culture, where we call people of the world, where we were, we had oral culture, and, and it was um, there was a lot of resistance when writing came along because the people who, we're really good at the Earl realized that writing um, would wither people's memory. They, you know, they used to be able to memorize immense long ballads and sagas, word for word, perfectly. And once people started to write it, they lost that. So there was some resistance to the book when it came in. Um, and but our civilization right now, for hundreds of years, has been centered around texts. So we have the Bible. Scriptures, we've got constitutions, we've got law, and authors was actually the origin of authority. So we came, we 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 viewed the authors and the written word as authority, and we're now in this third phase of the screen being the center of culture: the little screens, the screens that we see, the Hollywood screens, um, and screens are very different. So on paper, things are fixed. They're they're permanent. They're monumental. They're reliable. They're often precise, black and white, very, very clear. They're strong in a logical sentence. Um, On the screen, it's different. Things are flowing. we go back to the flows. They're becoming. They're always changing. You constantly update. You don't know if something's finished or done. It's never done. Um, it's messy, it's open-ended, it's ephemeral um, and there doesn't seem to be much authority. So on the screens, for every fact, there's a counterfact. For every truth, there's fake. For every expert, there's an anti-expert, a counter-expert. So you have to kind of begin to assemble truth yourself. It's a different way of approaching truth. and so we're moving into this realm of uh, the visual world, screen, what I call screen literacy, and we need an, another literacy to to understand it, just as we spent, everybody here, four or five years learning how to read and write. It was something we just didn't absorb by hanging around the screen, or I mean the books, we had to actually be taught how to do it. So. We may need to have a new screen literacy, a screen fluency, to understand how to use that best. And there are still some innovations or inventions we don't have in the screening world that we have in the text world. So besides inventing writing and, and reading, it took many, many centuries to invent things like alphabet order, putting things in alphabetical order, or index an index on the back of a book.
0: Page numbers.
1: Page numbers, footnotes, summaries, abstracts. There's all these things that we have now take for granted that allow us to maximize what we get from text and why it's the center of our culture or has been that we don't have yet in the screening world. So it's very hard to kind of um, hyperlink or footnote something inside a moving image. It's very hard to... to summarize and abstract what a moving image is. And right now, we cannot search for all video like we can search for all words on Google. But someday soon, we will be able to. And when that comes, that will also cement the idea that the moving image will now become the center of our culture.
0: Number five, we're just going to do two more, accessing. Uh, so you start off early here with, every year, I own less of what I use. possession is not as important as it once was accessing is more important than ever what do you mean by accessing
1: so this began in with music when the where a lot of the issues of ownership were first brought to fore um, because you could um, in the digital realm you can make a perfect copy of something for free basically and um it was what the economics economists called non-rival, meaning that I could make a perfect copy of something and you would still have the copy you had. So so you could spread these. And um, that kind of um, ability to, to replicate meant that it was very easy to get something in the digital world um, and I could very quickly get or find any music that was ever made somewhere. And if that access to, if getting it, could happen instantly, anywhere in the world I wanted, any time, it became less and less vital to own it. Um, in fact, the owning of the music became a liability, in a sense I'd have to back it up, I'd have to secure it, I'd have to index it and catalog it, I'd have to upgrade it if it was software, and um, if I was just reaching for it and getting it anytime I wanted to, I didn't have to do any of those things. So there was this movement to not owning music. So you have you subscribe to music, you subscribe to a library, and you get whatever music you want anytime. And the same thing happened with movies, where you don't buy a movie, you just subscribe to all movies, and you access the movies when you wanted to. Same thing with software, books with Amazon Unlimited, the same idea. You don't actually own them, you just... Borrow them anytime you want. You have access to them. And so that was the digital realm. And the question was, well, if that's true for the digital. Maybe you don't have to own things. But what about the physical world? And it, but it turns out that if you can make a instant or rapid delivery of things, um, that was, if, if, if you could deliver something within 30 minutes or half an hour, that was almost like having instant access to it. In other words, if I could deliver to you the -the state-of-the-art camping equipment within a half hour of you wanting it, that was probably faster than you could find it in your basement, (laughs) right? And so that became instant access. So the question became, it it made camping equipment a service rather than a noun, the same general drift of things not being finished, it's like, No, it becomes the camping equipment service to you. You have access to it, and you're gonna get the latest and the greatest camping equipment, not the five-year-old stuff you have in your basement. And so um, the question was, what else in the world can we move from a product that you had to buy to a service that you accessed? And again, going back to Uber and others is, well, physical things can also be delivered if they can be delivered really rapidly or the 3D printing phenomena. I don't believe the idea of people having 3D printers in their homes, but there might be local neighborhood versions where something would be printed out and you'd go pick it up locally or they would deliver to you within 30 minutes. And so there is a movement away from the benefits of ownership being more seen as a liability to the benefits of accessing things becoming more important than owning them.
0: And uh, you you say in the book in that chapter the wealthiest and most disruptive organizations today are almost all multi-sided platforms, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Facebook platforms by your definition, quote offer stuff they do not create, right. end quote. Out of curiosity, Kevin, do you own any of those stocks?
1: No, I, I, I well, the only investments we have are in large. Index funds. Okay. So most of my uh, investments it is in wealth, wealth front, kind of do the robot training. So I might own it, but I don't know. Right.
0: I was just curious. Since we have a crowd of investors, but uh, well, you've been right about those. They're great companies. And the Motley Fool is supported by Wunder Capital. That's Wunder, if you're German, maybe Wunder with a U capital, the easiest way to invest in large scale solar energy projects across the U.S. Bloomberg New Energy Finance estimates that $2.8 trillion will be invested in solar energy by 2040. With Wonder Capital's solar investment platform, individuals can now take advantage of this economic opportunity, and in fact, individuals like you have already financed more than 150 large-scale solar projects. These solar energy projects create enough electricity to power the equivalent of 5,000 homes, which helps offset almost 75 million pounds of carbon dioxide emissions each year. Visit wondercapital.com/fool to find out how you can begin investing in solar energy projects while earning up to seven and a half percent annually, and also helping in the fight against climate change. Again, that's wondercapital—that's wonder with a U. capital.com/fool. Wondercapital where impact investing meets capitalism. Let's just go to number six, and this is a really interesting one. Number six is, it kind of comes from accessing. There's some flow throughout your book. Number six is sharing. So sharing doesn't need any definition, but um, you go to a very interesting place in this chapter, uh, describing yourself later in the book as having for much of your life subscribed to sort of a traditional American individualism. And I would say that's the same of myself and probably many of us here. Uh, but you begin to talk about the power of socialism. Uh, but not with a capital S, um, not not really. This is more a trend toward capital S social to the sharing economy, uh, more sharing, kind of overlapping with our last trend, as I mentioned, accessing. So give us a little bit more about that. It's a very
1: interesting yeah. thought. Yeah, there, there's a whole discipline called the sharing economy and often the Airbnbs and the Ubers are, in, in, are included in that, um, the idea that you know, you're sharing your car or you're sharing a room in your home. But I, I, I think it's much, much bigger and broader than that. And um, when we're starting to talk about this thing, um, language becomes a problem because in a certain sense, the best word to describe a lot of this is socialization, socialism, social networks, social media. Is, is, is the word social, which in American tradition has a kind of a, there's a, there's a bag, the political baggage around it. So it's, 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 a, it's sort of like the wrong word to use, but it's actually the right word to use. And um, so this is not like a political thing. This is much more along the lines of what we're seeing is what, what this technology has done, it's mostly communication technology. It's permitting us to collaborate in many ways that we could never collaborate before. And that collaboration so, if you think about Uber, it's a kind of collaboration. It's taking people, ordinary people who are just, they have a car and other people who need a ride, and it's allowing them to collaborate to make, to deliver a ride. Or Airbnb, you're collaborating. And So this collaboration, this this kind of sharing, um, is becoming embedded and and, and we're kind of not even um, aware of it, but eventually it will have some social implications, but right now it's being enabled by technology. And the message I wanted to suggest is that we're just at the beginning of this. We're just at the beginning of understanding the ways in which we can now collaborate in multiple size groups over multiple distances in real time. And so um, I would make a prediction that in the next 10 to 20 years that we will witness the creation of a project where a million people are gonna work together in real time to make something. That was simply impossible to do in real life. You just couldn't have that. number of people together adjacent. You couldn't have them working together. But that's possible with these new technologies. And so um, that is the frontier that we're going into is collaborating in ways that we had not ever imagined at a scale in real time that we had never imagined. And again, Wikipedia is kind of one example of that kind of collaboration.
0: Where people work for free.
1: Where people work for free, but that's not the real, news, the real news is you have a million people working around the world working on something together that was not possible. They weren't doing it in real time, but that's the next step. And so companies will begin to, to harness more and more of that, and um, businesses will begin to take advantage of this, and it's a global platform. We're, we're making a global machine. Um, it's not just, I mean, it, If you take up all the transistors and all the chips and all our phones and all our devices, they're all wired together. It's like a big machine that we've made together. And so that is the platform that we're making and that is the frontier in the sharing world where these technologies allow us to share work, share interests, share um, effort, Share our
0: own personal health data.
1: Exactly, that's another example. Patients like me. That's right, um, or genetics. We get, you have your um, genes, 23, you have your gene sequence and then you share that data with meeting people that that are related to you, um, finding out um, health issues, finding out um, performance um, uh, hints. All these things are multiple examples of how we're going to make both businesses and new cultural norms by sharing in ways that we were not possible before.
0: Um, Here's a quote for all of us stock pickers, Uh, quote, We have barely begun to explore what kinds of amazing things a crowd can do. There must be two million different ways to crowdfund an idea, or to crowd-organize it, or to crowd-make it. There must be a million more new ways to share unexpected things in unexpected ways. In the next three decades, the greatest wealth and most interesting cultural innovations lie in this direction. The largest, fastest growing, most profitable companies in 2050 will be companies that will have figured out how to harness aspects of sharing that are invisible and unappreciated today. Anything that can be shared, thoughts, emotions, money, health, time will be shared in the right conditions with the right benefits. So that's a lovely summation. He wrote it himself, so it's easy to quote Kevin back to Kevin. Um,
1: And let me just give you one kind of business example, very, very briefly. Um, It kind of goes to the idea of flowing in data. So so, um, let's take two car companies. Ford, which has been around for 100 years, they have manufactured 100 million vehicles, and they're worth something, whatever it is 44 billion dollars. Then there's Tesla everybody's heard about Tesla and they're struggling to make cars, and they have barely made 200,000 cars I think they're less than 200,000 cars. But they're actually valued their cap is more than, than Ford. And you say, well, why would that be? Well, because in Ford, even though they've made 100 million vehicles, they have about zero knowledge about how individual owners use their car. They they have zero miles of knowledge about how individual customers are using their cars. In fact, in most cases, they don't even know who their customers are. They don't have any data about them. Tesla, on the other hand, even though they have several orders of magnitude less vehicles sold, has 1.3 billion miles of user data of how their individual customers are using those cars in great detail. So they're basically a data company. They're basically um, a a company that knows and is sharing, their customers are sharing their data of how they use things with that company. And so that's the value that we're getting because they can actually customize a car to that individual rider, they can upgrade it, they can use that to, to make the cars better, et cetera. So, that's a case where sharing what you are using with the maker is really, really valuable.
0: Alright, we'll leave it right there for now. Thanks again to Kevin Kelly. Thank you for joining with me this week. Two housekeeping notes. The first is, this interview continues. That's right, coming out this weekend, one of our Rule Breaker Investing podcast extras will probably hit somewhere Saturday morning or so on the East Coast of the United States, where I continue and finish that conversation with Kevin and we take some questions from the audience. And then next week, well, next week's podcast comes into two flavors. First, we're going to do Investment Lingo, Volume 2. So, we're going to go over some of the common terms that we use. We'll have some beginning terms, some intermediate terms, perhaps an advanced term as well, something for everybody in next week's show. It's fun to go over the language of investing and get to know these concepts, get smarter as investors. That'll be our goal. We'll also be doing one of our five-stock sampler reviews. That's right. Do you remember the five stocks the world needs right now? Well, we'll see how much the world actually needed these stocks and how we've done with them. We'll check in on that next week as well. In the meantime, full on.